This is Democracy, a podcast about the people of the United States, a podcast about citizenship, about engaging with politics and the world around you, a podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues and how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, uh, we have the great privilege of uh, speaking with uh, one of the most experienced, accomplished, and influential figures uh, in American relations with uh, Ukraine and the wider East European region. Uh, This is Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch. Uh, She's recently published a really stunning memoir that I encourage everyone to read called Lessons from the Edge, and we'll talk about why it's the edge uh, for her. Uh, She is uh, a long-serving American ambassador. She was the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine from 2016 to 2019. Before that, uh, the ambassador to Armenia from 2008 to 2011, and before that to the Kyrgyz Republic from 2005 to 2008. She's also held many high-ranking policy positions in the State Department, in the building, as people call it. Uh, She served as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs, and there she coordinated European and global security issues. And before that, she was the Bureau's Deputy Assistant Secretary responsible for issues related to the Nordic, Baltic, and Central European countries. So she has uh, studied this region and worked in this region Uh, for quite a long time, since the late 1980s. And of course, this is the larger region surrounding uh, the current war in Ukraine. So we're going to talk to the ambassador about the ways in which U.S. policy has evolved in this region and the ways we should understand the evolution of that policy for current challenges surrounding Ukraine and democratization in the region as a whole. Uh, Ambassador, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Before we turn to our discussion, uh, of course, we have our uh, scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. What's the title of your poem, Zachary? Ode to President Zelensky. Well, let's hear the ode to President Zelensky. They say yours is a land of poetry, and I believe it, because only the poet, now the plumber, the teacher, the student, can walk in front of a tank, can radio obscenities to the enemy from an isle of snakes. They say yours is a land of poetry. You walk the streets red-eyed in front of the palaces in the early dawn hours, your smile fading majestically into resolution. I would like to see the poetry of the child waiting in the metro station for the bombs to fall. I would like to see the poetry of the mother holding that child on the border, trying to cross into humanity. I would like to see the poetry of the father and his Molotov patrolling the streets of his city at dawn. Maybe he runs into you because you are there too and you are holding your child too and you are waiting also to cross into humanity. They say yours is a land of poetry, and I remember it now, how they walked Kharkiv and took their lyrics from the city in snow, the city in snow that holds back an empire now the city in snow that holds your fate in its hands, the city in snow where the missile hits the apartment block and you bow your head and pray. They say yours is a land of poetry. I'd like to visit it someday and walk the streets that they did and hold the staircase banisters that they did, running down to the bomb shelter at 4 a.m. when Kiev is bombed. And maybe I'd run into you because you are there too, and you are holding your child too, and you are waiting also to cross into humanity. That's a very moving poem, Zachary. What is your poem about? My poem is really about uh, the power of, of telling a story uh, of humanitarian and, and, and humanist leadership uh, in the midst of such inhuman violence. Hmm. Well, I think that uh, is, a, is a dark opening, but an opening, I think, that that's appropriate for our conversation today. Uh, a- a- Ambassador, how did you get interested and involved uh you talk about this in the first hundred pages or so of your memoir how did you get involved in this part of the world which has such a a long history of uh warfare and uh, if we might say so inhumane experiences between different societies 
Yeah. Well, if I could just um, echo your words of praise for the poem, because, and it directly relates to the answer I'm going to give you, because, um, you know, there are big geopolitical events like war and famine and um, all the things that we're seeing now, but uh, it all does boil down to our own humanity and individuals and how individuals deal with those things, how individuals lead us through these crises, um, hopefully towards a you know, uh, a more positive future. So my um, parents grew up in this region. Uh, that's uh, where my roots are. My father was born in the Soviet Union in 1921. He grew up in uh, what was then Yugoslavia and uh, was taken prisoner of war by the Nazis um, and uh, lived uh, in, in, in wartime Paris after he escaped. And um, my mom was uh, half Russian. She grew up as a stateless person because she was half Russian uh, in Nazi Germany, uh, not a comfortable, comfortable upbringing there. And they both saw all sorts of horrific things and they both um, understood what it was to live under authoritarian regimes uh, where you are not free and where you are afraid. And, um, you know, they met in Canada and made their way to the United States with me. Uh, and they were always grateful uh, to have safe harbor in the United States, to be able to bring up my brother and I in a democracy where they could say what they wanted to say, where they could believe what they wanted to believe, go to church uh, and worship in the way they wanted to worship. Um, and they taught us not to take it for granted. Uh, and they also taught us, even though materially we had very little, uh, although we were very rich in the things that, that count, um, that we were fortunate. We were fortunate to be in the United States and to have all that opportunity and that we needed to give back. And so, you know, I many detours in my life, as I'm sure there are in many of our listeners' lives. But uh, in my uh, late 20s, um, I uh, came back to an original idea that I had in my teens of joining the Foreign Service, working in the State Department, working on foreign policy, marrying up my um, my, uh, you know, passion for history and politics and foreign policy and traveling. And after all, this is a career that pays you to travel. <laughs> and, um, you know, how lucky can you get, right? And, um, and the idea of giving back to the American people who had given so much to our family. So, you know, that all kind of, uh, kind of came together. And I joined the Foreign Service in 1986. And I just want to highlight this. You mentioned this in passing in your in your memoir, uh, but it's important because uh, many of my students are pursuing the same career path. Uh, the first time you took the Foreign Service exam, you did not pass, correctly. And I only bring that up because that happens to a lot of my students as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yet, obviously, it didn't stop you from having a, <laughs> an incredible career, correct? Yeah, that's right. So I didn't pass the first time. I took it again and, and I passed. Um, I had a number of, uh, you know, stumbles, if uh, not outright failures in the early part of my career, where, you know, I, I wanted to do certain kind of work. I wanted to do political analysis and reporting. I was not able to do that, even though I tried in various ways. You know, I persisted. I volunteered. I did all sorts of things. Um, in the end, I was uh, lucky enough to uh, be a beneficiary of a class action lawsuit that had started decades before I joined the Foreign Service. The State Department uh, fought it for decades, um, and eventually a court found that the State Department was discriminating against women um, in the exam, in the intake, in how they assigned people their specialties, in how they uh, assigned people their women their jobs, and how they promoted them. So across the board, discrimination. And um, I was fortunate enough to be one of 14 women who was offered a, a remedy in um, 1992. And uh, that really started me on my career for what I wanted to do. And I only bring this up that persistence is really important uh, in the face of setbacks and failure. But, you know, sometimes even persistence isn't enough. And, you know, maybe there are other remedies uh, like the law. Uh, to help us uh, move our institutions along and make those institutions live up to our ideals. And just to uh, add a little bit to that, and you talk about this in, in really interesting detail in your memoir, this was the lawsuit filed by, I believe, Alison Palmer, uh, right. who was a generation, maybe two generations before you in the State Department, correct? Yeah, mm -hmm. that's right. 
Um, so, so how did you then come to uh, your work uh, in in uh, in Ukraine, which was actually, I think, your first posting back to this region as a, as a DCM, if I'm not mistaken, right? As basically the number two in the embassy there. How did that happen? Yeah. Well, I had served in um, Uzbekistan on temporary duty. I served in Moscow for three years in the early 1990s. Um, uh, you know, I was interested in the region in part because of my roots. Um, I had studied Russian in college, again, because of my roots, but it was also during the Cold War. So if you were interested in foreign policy, national security, um, Russian was a good language to have. Um, and, you know, all of a sudden in 1991, I mean, I shouldn't say all of a sudden, I mean, the decay was evident for decades, but the Soviet Union fell apart. Um, there were, you know, instead of just one country, the Soviet Union, there were 15 uh, countries, all of which needed um you know, new embassies and staffing and everything else. So there was a lot of opportunity for people who had studied the region or knew the language, were interested in going. And um, I, um, you know, uh, worked on uh, the area both, you know, when I was in Russia, obviously, uh, from 1993 to 96, but also I came back to Washington and worked on, I was the deputy director of the Russia desk. And um, um worked with uh, closely with the uh, man who was eventually named ambassador to Ukraine, and he asked me to be his number two. And so I went out in 2001. Um, and that was, uh, you know, just a fascinating, fascinating period of time to be there. And, and what's really interesting to me about that chapter, and it's a long chapter in your memoir, uh, and it's part of your background I didn't know uh, when you became famous later on, uh, but w what was really interesting to me about it was you talk in depth about the problems of corruption and mismanagement in Ukraine, uh, the, the efforts by the Ukrainians at times to cover up. Uh, misdeeds and things of that sort. It, it's it's different, of course, from the image we want to tell ourselves about current Ukraine. Um, so I, if you could just reflect on that, uh, because it'll obviously be relevant when we talk about current events. So all of the countries of the former Soviet Union, the new countries um, that emerged, um, you know, ha had the legacy of the Soviet Union to deal with. And corruption flourishes in countries that do not provide services to their people that do not govern well because um, you know the leaders are too busy stealing to you know actually fix roads or have good schools or good medical systems and everything else. But people are going to find a way, and that is um, you know, and they're watching, of course, the example of their leaders stealing you know millions and billions, um, and so they're paying bribes uh, left, right, and center. Uh, to, you know, get that telephone, you know, this was back in the days of landlines, get that telephone installed or electricity turned on or the right medication for their sick child in the hospital um, because, you know, because you're going to find a way to get what you need, right? And so there, there, is, there was, in the Soviet Union, there, the system was corruption. And so when all of these countries emerged, it wasn't like all of a sudden all of that went away. Um, so even as um, you know, countries were trying to develop democracies um, in what was formerly a communist state, um, trying to develop, um, you know, capitalism, market economies in, you know, what was a demand, a, a, a command um, economy. Um, you know, these legacy systems continued to flourish. And as there were gaps in laws and regulations, and as there were opportunities to steal, you know, the, 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 the young and the bold and the um, very connected in, you know, the military or especially the security services found ways to, um, you know, snag um, the state um, state-owned properties that were being privatized because ordinary citizens didn't understand the concept of privatization, the concept that, you know, a voucher for a part of a factory actually held real value. Um, and so um, there was, um, I'm not saying it was illegal, um, but you could certainly make a case that what was going on was deeply um, unfair, uh, deeply immoral, and, um, you know, kind of set the stage for ordinary citizens to say, well, gosh, if this is if this is democracy, if this is the market economy, you can keep it. You know, it was better, um, better in the old days, even as they were pocketing some of the really positive things that were happening in their countries. They would look back fondly um, to the old days. And so, you know, fast forward to 2001. 
Um, that was 10 years after independence and a whole new crew of, you know, 20 somethings, 30 somethings who had, um, you know, been educated um, slightly after, um, after the fall apart of the Soviet Union. So not as indoctrinated. Um, there, there was a whole class of civil society activists that were, were coming up and uh, crucially investigative journalists. And they were, um, you know, making inroads and um, trying to uh, set up the, the democracy that they knew Ukraine could be. And they were really active and really inspiring. And, um, you know, it was just a flourishing of society, even against um, the, um, the entrenched interests that really didn't want to move forward. Um, so uh, that was something that I really admired in Ukrainians in 2001 to 2004 when I was there the first time. And the reason that I wanted to go back in 2016 after the Revolution of Dignity. And, and what role did you and others in the U.S. Embassy and what, what role as a whole did U.S. policy play in trying to counter corruption and support those uh, heroic uh, activists uh, that you've just described? Uh, in what period of time? Uh, well, throughout the period, I mean, I, I'm actually thinking of your your coverage in your memoir of your time in Ukraine, also in Kyrgyzstan and elsewhere. And, and one of the reasons I asked the question is there's often the criticism made that the United States didn't do enough and that we contributed to corruption in the region. Yeah, well, and I think I think that that's very valid criticism. Um, that certainly when I was in Ukraine the first time, um, anti-corruption. I mean, we we could see the corruption. People talked about it. Um, but it was not a part of um, really, or a big part at least, of our policy discussions with the Ukrainians. It was um, not a part of our assistance programs to, you know, sort of have um, anti-corruption programs, programming. Uh, we could see it, um, but it was like the elephant in the room that nobody, you know, we were all too polite to, to mention it. So we were working with the Ukrainians to try to help them build a, um, a market economy. And yet, <laughs> you know, uh, it, the, the, the foundation of what should be a healthy, thriving economy in a country that is relatively rich um, was uh, constantly being nibbled away by, um, by corruption. And so contrast that with um, 2016 when I returned, where when I presented my credentials uh, to President Poroshenko, he raised the issue of corruption. I mean, I think if we had talked to President Kuchma in 2001 about corruption, we would have been thrown out of the room. But civil society, the people of Ukraine, were the ones that were moving this agenda of anti-corruption forward over the years. And in 2014, um, they uh, there was the Revolution of Dignity, which means uh, I want to be treated with dignity. I don't want to have to pay bribes for something that is, you know, my due as a citizen of Ukraine. And, um, uh, you know, it was basically rule of law. We want to live under the rule of law and we want to be able to hold our leaders accountable when they steal from us. And by, you know, some accounts, um, by, uh, by some measures, uh, President Yanukovych, who was the leader in 2014, he and his cronies stole $40 billion from Ukraine. And um, so that revolution, you know, there was real basis for people being unhappy. And uh, when they were successful and, you know, chased Yanukovych out of the country, the new um, president, President Koroshenko, even though he was an oligarch himself, he came in on a platform of anti-corruption. And um, so it was the, the people, the activists, the um uh, the government itself with that platform, and crucially also the international uh, community, uh, whether it was the international financial institutions like uh, IMF or the World Bank, uh, whether it was the EU, uh, the US, others, um, we all kind of came together and um, there was a negotiation of what steps Ukraine was going to take on this anti-corruption move. Um, and um, the international community was willing to help fund it, help pay for it, support it, um, but we uh, were pretty tough um, and, um, you know, told the Ukrainians that they needed to take certain steps and then we would provide, you know, the funding that um, we were not willing to continue to pay, you know, sort of into a bottomless black, black hole of business as usual. And even then with, you know, such momentum for the fight against corruption, 
it was it was tough um, because you know change is hard under any circumstances, and you know that is true in Ukraine just as it is true in the United States, and arguably the conditions there were harder in 2014. And what role did Russia play in all of this? I think, I think maybe uh, for many of our listeners, that's that's the key question at the moment. Uh, how how has Russia shaped this region uh, in the years since 1991, and 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 what role do you see it is is playing at the moment? Yeah, well, so for the first um, ten years of independence uh, under um, President Yeltsin, um, Russia was. Um, you know, working towards democracy, working towards um, establishing a market economy. We had a pretty good relationship with with Russia and crucially on uh, important security issues, including nuclear issues, uh, which was, you know, I mean, this is going back a while, but, you know, we were very concerned about loose nukes in um in Russia and Ukraine and Kazakhstan. Uh, and, um, you know, would countries have the ability to safeguard these maintain them because that requires a lot of money, a lot of sophistication, um, a lot of commitment uh, when, you know, countries are, uh, you know, new countries and having to, um, a lot of other priorities as well. So we had a, um, you know, it's, it's hard to believe now, uh, given, you know, some of the propaganda that is being put out by, um, by Russia, but we had a really, um, you know, a positive relationship with Russia, and we worked very hard to include Russia in the international community. Uh, President Clinton um, invited uh, President Yeltsin to join the group of eight, um, which is, you know, it had been the group of seven, the seven largest economies in the world. Russia was not the you know, eighth largest economy in the world, but we wanted them at the table. We wanted to bring them in so that they would understand that working within uh, the global uh, rules-based system uh, was an advantage, not just to us, but for Russia as well. And, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to believe, but, you know, we were talking about maybe one day Russia joining the EU, even, even NATO. Uh, but, when um, and even Putin uh, was talking in that way in in the very very beginning of uh, his uh, years in power, um, but um, but then he took a very hard right turn uh, over the um, early two thousands um, or the mid two thousands, and um, you know we can we can see the result. So um, yeah, so that was uh, that was really unfortunate. And, and Ambassador, I just want to ask you now because it's a it's a question that comes up quite often. Uh, do you think the expansion of NATO um, alienated Russia? Um, I, I I actually think that's a red herring. Um, mm-hmm. I think that um, Russia uses it, and you know certainly used it as a pretext to uh, invade um, or reinvade, I should say, Ukraine uh, in um, in February of this year. But I mean, look at all the things that um, that um, Putin has said, you know, on the eve of the war um, where he thought, you know, be a couple of days and he would take Kiev and all of Ukraine. um, He was already setting his sights for countries further west. Um, He has uh, repeatedly talked about the international order as something that, um, you know, is 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 not not a positive thing, even though even Russia benefits from it. And um, he has you know, just recently, uh, last week, compared himself to Peter the Great and uh, talked about uh, how he is going to reabsorb lands that that are Russian. Um, I I don't think this uh, really has um, much to do with with NATO. And I think it, it, it also bears repeating once again that it's not like NATO uh, in the early 1990s was looking to expand and beat the drums and force other countries to join NATO. Um, other countries asked to join NATO, and they did it even at the time because they wanted security guarantees. They remembered Russian history and Russia's long history of invading their countries, and they were not sanguine uh, that. Uh, the peace that we saw, uh, well, mostly saw in the 1990s, at least in that part of Europe, um, was going to last. And, um, you know, now we're looking at uh, possibly another uh, enlargement of NATO with Sweden and Finland. And again, why is that? It is precisely because of Russian actions. 
Um, you know, the very thing that Putin um, says he didn't want, uh, an expansion of NATO, he's getting because of the aggressive actions of um, his country. Right. I mean, in a certain way, uh, recent events have uh, redeemed the arguments made by the Poles and others for the necessity of NATO, it's, it seems to me. Um, I, I wanted us to, to get back to uh, your time then as ambassador to Ukraine, which began in 2016. This was your second tour of duty there. You had been uh, in the embassy earlier. Um, when you returned as ambassador, and this is obviously when uh, things become very quickly complicated with the new Trump administration, what what were your main goals? What were you working on in Ukraine in that period as ambassador? Yeah, so um, our policy towards Ukraine hasn't really changed since um, 1991 when Ukraine gained uh, independence. Uh, you know, it's it sort of... Um, you know, three three legs of a stool. The first is um, security, a security partnership. The second is um, a uh, an economic relationship, uh, and the third is a political relationship. And um, you know, we worked with Ukraine as we did with Russia and other countries of the former Soviet Union to help them um, build up their um, build up their security, um, uh, so that. Uh, you know, one of the things that we look for in our security partners is interoperability and uh, an ability to do, you know, when, when we have goals in common, whether it's against terrorists or pirates or, you know, other missions around the world, that we can work with other countries and make it a, um, you know, a multi-partnership um, sort, of, uh, sort of a thing. Um, so we, we worked with, um, with, uh, with Ukraine on that. Um, and also trying to help them reform their military so it wasn't the kind of top-down, heavy, corrupt uh, institution that you can see in Russia, um, but uh, more of a modern military that relies on uh, non-commissioned officers, that is more flexible, where procurements are overseen by, um, you know, by the legislature um, that are transparent so that there's less opportunity for graft and corruption. Um, on the um, political side, uh, the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian government, since the very first days, said that they wanted to become a democracy. We thought that that would be good for Ukraine. That you know, most people, um, you know, whether it's in the U.S. or in Ukraine or someplace else, they don't talk about wanting to live in a democracy as though they were a bunch of political scientists in a classroom. They talk about wanting to have opportunity to want wanting to live in security, wanting to have um, a good job so they can take care of their families, so that uh, wanting uh, you know the government to provide services so that their kids can get a good education and a good job later on. Um, and they want um, accountability so that if they don't like their mayor or their president, they can throw the bum out and you know elect somebody else instead. That's democracy. And um, it's not a perfect system, but it's um, the best one out there. And so I, um, you know, we thought that would be good for Ukraine. And we definitely thought it would be good for the United States because democracies make better partners for the United States, um, period, paragraph. We have, uh, you know, we share values, but democracies are generally uh, also more stable and more stable in, um, in, their, uh, in their region. And then, of course, the important uh, commercial and economic relationship. Ukraine's a huge country with a huge market and lots of resources. And so we saw a lot of opportunity for American business, um, creating jobs in America, creating profits in, in America. And so we wanted to build up those, um, those relationships. Um, but that also depended on rule of law so that when, um, when American companies are, are in Ukraine, uh, they know that they can rely on the rules as written, uh, that the court system is um, a, an open one and a fair one. And, you know, judicial opinions are not um, based on payment uh, by one or the other party. So we had a pretty big agenda with Ukraine, and it has continued with bipartisan support since, um, since uh, 1991. Now, with the revolution in um, 2014, the revolution of dignity, which really kind of jump-started a lot of reforms because it was coming directly, that desire was coming directly from the people. Um, we, you know, really jump-started, uh, again, um, you know, our efforts to help the Ukrainians. And so I think that was, um, that was an important part of it.
And what happened then as you were pursuing this uh, agenda, which sounds um, vital and, and reasonable and appropriate, uh, an, an agenda for basic uh, building democratic institutions and creating the, the foundations for a better partnership between the United States and Ukraine, what happened with the Trump administration to undermine your efforts? Well, you know, the, <laughs> the crazy thing is the, um, the official... Um, U.S. foreign policy, in other words, Trump's foreign policy, did not change over that time. I mean, if you if you look at um, statements made and everything else, but there was an undercurrent that um, perhaps President Trump himself was not completely comfortable with that, given his statements about Russia, about Putin, about Crimea being a part of Russia, and on and on. Um, but the actual policy didn't change, and in fact, it was strengthened in 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 one way that. President Trump agreed to send, you know, after about a year, uh, he agreed to send javelins, um, those anti-tank missiles, to uh, to Ukraine for the first time, something the Obama uh, administration had refused to do. So ironically, on the one hand, um, you know, the policy was, was good and we were continuing to implement it and going full force. And it had, as I said, bipartisan support on the Hill. Um, but, you know, there were you know, there were always, uh, there was always kind of, uh, we were always wondering, you know, when would the next shoe drop uh, from um, President Trump? And then, uh, you know, in 2018, I was starting to hear rumblings um, that, uh, you know, maybe I might be replaced. And at the end of 2018, I was told by a cabinet, a Ukrainian cabinet member, that, um, that in fact, there was a plan to do this, that uh, a corrupt prosecutor named Lutsenko uh, was working with Americans um, to get rid of me. And, you know, when I would go back to Washington, my part of Washington, official professional Washington, they were like, no, that's crazy. You're doing a great job. And in fact, in February, I was asked to stay on for another year. Um, but, um, but there was a parallel track, the Giuliani track, and um, they were um, working a deal with the Ukrainians to um, see if they could get dirt on the Biden family uh, that would uh, perhaps embarrass them and um, be advantageous to Trump in a possible um, presidential uh, um, matchup in our presidential elections. And part of the quid pro quo was, uh, I know that Poroshenko wanted uh, Trump to endorse him for president, but I think Lutsenko wanted me out of the country because he did not like me and he did not like um, the efforts of the U.S. Embassy to fulfill our uh, U.S. policy uh, goals, but also Ukrainian policy goals to fight corruption. And uh, ultimately, uh, those two were successful in having me removed from Ukraine. And I'd just like to make one other point about that. While that was, you know, obviously deeply, <laughs> deeply distressing for me, um, um, what it, it, it went well beyond me because you know, as we know, presidents are, you know, it, it is in their mandate. They get to name ambassadors, they get to remove ambassadors. But what happened with me was there was a whole um, publicly orchestrated campaign to accuse me of all sorts of wrongdoing. Um, and then ostensibly that was the reason that um, I was pulled out of post when there was no necessity for anything like that. Um, Trump could have removed me, period, paragraph. Um, without making it a big public deal. So anybody paying attention um, knew that there was something else going on. It wasn't entirely clear what was going on, but knew something else was going on. But the effect on our national security was greater because bad actors, whether it's private actors in the United States, like Giuliani and his cohort, or um, corrupt actors abroad, they could see that if there was an ambassador or somebody else that was making life uncomfortable for them, they could cut a deal. They could, right. you know, find what uh, was advantageous to President Trump personally and possibly um, possibly get that person removed, um, you know, when they are actually implementing U.S. foreign policy. And um, I think that sent a shiver of fear uh, through many of my colleagues and probably a shiver of hope, uh, a sh you know, hope. Uh, through uh, many bad, bad actors around the world. It was, it was extremely dangerous uh, for our national security. Well, and it's very hard to um, convince countries to make the hard choices about abandoning corruption and implementing democratic systems when, when we're acting in corrupt ways ourselves, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. So how did these challenges uh, from the Trump administration not only undermine U.S. foreign policy, what, what, what effect did they have on this new government under President Zelensky? Well, I think that, you know, President Zelensky, his background, as you know, is he was an actor and a comedian, uh, a very accomplished businessman. He had uh, set up a multi-million dollar production company based on, you know, his own talents and the talents of his friends from, you know, Creevy Reed, the area he's from. And, but he was not a politician and he didn't, um, you know, know how the levers of government worked. And um, so uh, that's what the Ukrainian people wanted. They, they voted for him as the protest vote against Poroshenko, who they felt, um, you know, hadn't accomplished enough in six years and was getting too, uh, too comfortable. So they voted Zelensky in um, with 73% uh, of, of, of the vote. And, um, you know, Zelensky was um, moving forward with his agenda of trying to end the war in Ukraine, uh, um, in the Donbass, uh, as well as ending corruption. That, that, that was, those were the two points of his platform with, um, you know, mixed success. I mean, he was really struggling. His uh, popularity ratings were in the 30s um, on February 23rd, um, then the Russians invaded and he became, you know, the Winston Churchill of our time in camouflage. And, um, you know, now he's at 94% um, popularity rating. And, you know, it makes me wonder who, uh, who are the other 6% <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. Um, but I think, um, you know, going back to your question, uh, he had, no experience in government, no experience with, um, you know, foreign policy, national security uh, in a country that was very challenged. Uh, and so, uh, you know, his, uh, he had a couple of congratulatory phone calls with Trump, and then he had the, the fateful, important phone call that Trump dubbed the perfect phone call in July of 2019, where, uh, you know, Zelensky's mission was to get uh, Trump to uh, approve another order of javelins, those anti-tank missiles, to Ukraine. Uh, this is something that had already been funded um, by the U.S. Congress, um, but um, as as we now know, uh, the president, uh, President Trump, was uh, holding holding that up. And so he, you know, he was on a mission to establish a good relationship with his most important counterpart leader, um, and also specifically to uh, to get those javelins released. And Trump, uh, for his part, um, was also on a mission. He wanted to get Zelensky to um, institute uh, investigations into the Biden family um, to benefit himself personally and politically. Uh, this is not a mission on behalf of the American people. He was using his office to benefit himself. Uh, that's something that you know I've seen and we've all seen in other countries. I never expected to see it in the United States. And so, you know, Zelensky, uh, as you know, a new, <laughs> a new president, um, I can only imagine what was going through his head as he was talking on, uh, you know, his, his side of the Atlantic during this conversation. Um, and I think, you know, there, there's a, an interview which he gave either in September or October of that year, where he basically said he doesn't trust any foreign power. And I think you can draw a straight line from that conversation with Trump to uh, that comment by, by Zelensky. Did the actions taken by the Trump administration in removing you in uh, trying to bully Zelensky into turning over dirt on uh, Joe Biden's family, did, did those actions encourage the Russian invasion? You know, I, I, I think it did, because I think that um, not only Putin, but perhaps other authoritarian leaders, I mean, they 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 drew solace from uh, that uh, the transcript that that was released and you know just all the other signals that that Trump was sending uh, about Ukraine. Uh, I mean, I think it was clear to the Ukrainians uh, who were always worried about where they stood, not necessarily with the U.S. but with the president of the United States. Um, and um, and I think the same thing is true for Putin. I mean, he he could see that um, Trump. Um, very much admired him and, um, you know, saw Ukraine as the weaker uh, power and one not really, um, I think, uh, worthy of his Trump's uh, 
Trump's attention. And so I think it enabled um, Putin to get away with stuff. And I'll give you an example. Um, in November of 2018, uh, Russia broadened the war in uh, Ukraine to the naval domain. Russia sees three Ukrainian vessels and 24 sailors in uh, international waters um, the weekend after Thanksgiving. And Trump uh, would not allow the State Department, and certainly did not issue one himself, did not issue a statement of any kind. I mean, this is the sort of thing that would be routine. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a signal to uh, a country like Russia that we're watching. This is not okay. You need to de-escalate um, while you still can, while you're in international waters and can let those uh, vessels go. But, you know, radio silence, crickets from the United States. And I'm sure the Russians were well aware that there was, you know, lots of phone calls back and forth um, on the U.S. side and that, um, you know, there, there was um, no acquiescence from, from the U.S. You know, 24 hours later, um, after the Russians had already towed those vessels back to Russia, um, Nikki Haley um, went way beyond her officially sanctioned talking points at the UN to condemn Russian actions, but it was too late. Right. And, um, you know, I, people forget about that. And I think um, they forget about the fact that, uh, you know, the US was thinking about, you know, what else can our response be? And we came up with a couple of steps, including sending warships to the Black Sea. This is something we do routinely. Uh, whether it's in the Taiwan Straits, other parts of the world, and the Black Sea. And we do it to signal that um, commercial uh, lanes are open for, uh, for, uh, for you know, other, other vessels, uh, that we have an interest in, um, in, in, in that, that, that this is vitally important, navigation, free navigation of, of the seas. And so it was announced, um, and... <laughs> And President Trump saw it on CNN. Uh, I mean, he had agreed to it, but then he saw it on CNN and he worried that um, Putin wouldn't like it and he canceled it. These, send, these kinds of actions send signals, not only to the Ukrainians, but to the Russians as well. Do you think that um, the Biden administration has been able to um, fix this problem? Have we now reached a point where we're, we've overcome those those? Um, challenges, or is the legacy still strong? Well, I think that the Biden administration has done a really good job, a really good job in very, very difficult circumstances of trying to navigate what is a very narrow channel uh, between, um, on the one hand, supporting Ukraine, deterring Russia, and reinforcing the eastern flank, and on the other hand, um, you know, not widening the war. Nobody wants a war with Russia. And Russia knows that. And Russia is trying to deter us in all sorts of ways, including reminding uh, in a very um, irresponsible way that they are uh, a nuclear power and they could use their nuclear might if, if, if provoked. And um, so I think, you know, this is not a static, um, you know, the answer to your question uh, it, it's it's hard to answer it because it's not a static situation. So on the one hand, I think Putin was surprised by the resolve of the United States, by the ability of NATO and the other Western countries to unify by you know the remarkable um, fight back from not just the uh, Ukrainian military, but the Ukrainian people and Zelensky's leadership. Um, so, you know, that was that was all good, but you know now we're heading into month four, and um, you know um, the attention is is drifting. Um, people wonder how long this is going to last. What's going to be the cost to us? And I think what we need to remember is that yes, this is a war about Ukraine. I mean, Putin, no question, has an obsession about Ukraine and returning it to Mother Russia. But it is also about something bigger, which is this is a war on, on Europe. Um, Putin has made that clear. And I think if he's successful in the Donbass, he's going to wait and see if he can continue pushing west. Um, and if he can't do it immediately, he will wait and he will regroup. That's been his pattern over time with Georgia in 20, 2008, Ukraine for the first time in 2014. He will do this again. He's told us that he has aims beyond Ukraine. And that the international order is one of the, you know, one of the targets in his sights. 
And so I think we need to take him at his word. If Putin is successful, not only will he continue, maybe not this year, maybe in 10 years, um, maybe in five years, um, but other autocrats will be emboldened because they will see that countries can get away with with, um, imposing force on their neighbors, their weaker neighbors. And, um, you know, that creates a world that is far more dangerous for us. The international rules-based order, um, you know, there's a reason that countries, including the Soviet Union, came together after World War II um, to sort of try to set up principles like sovereignty and non-use of force or the threat of force or the inviolability of borders and the institutions to help us manage them and the treaties and agreements um, to, um, you know, give us the guidelines for how, how to do all of this. Over the last, you know, 70 plus years, we have been, and when I say we, uh, I don't just mean the U.S. I think this includes Russia as well. We have been more secure, more prosperous. Maybe this part doesn't include Russia and more free. And if Putin is allowed to set the terms of what international engagement looks like post February 24th, it is going to be a far more dangerous, far less prosperous world for all of us. We, we always like to close, Ambassador, with some uh, hopeful um, thoughts uh, drawing on this history, and you've shared so much with us. We, we haven't talked uh, very much about your personal ordeal, uh, d- testifying uh, during the impeachment hearings. Uh, that's in your book, and, and I hope our readers will, will read that. It was a very, very moving part of your book for me. Uh, but, but I do want us to try to close on a somewhat hopeful note. Um, from your long experience that you've shared a little bit of with us right here, uh, wh- what are the opportunities we have going forward? What, what have we learned in the last 30 years that can, can help us to do better uh, in this region, in the region around Ukraine, and, and in a broader sense? Your, your final chapter of your memoir uh, refers to the Foreign Service and your career uh, as the best America has to offer. What, what is the best we have to offer going forward? Well, and it's not just us. Uh, you know, I look at the people of Ukraine who I think surprised the world. Um, they didn't surprise me um, because I know them. But, um, you know, they um, they they want to live in a free country. I mean, they're fighting on um, giving everything they've got um, to fight for their country, to fight for their families, to fight for their freedom, to fight for our freedom. Um, that gives me a lot of hope. I mean, I, you know, I think of how many conversations I've had with people and continue to have with people who, um, you know, basically don't think, you know, some of these countries should have the right to uh, determine their own futures, that they are smaller countries and, you know, are our um, bigger issues, um, you know, we need to deal with the, the, the bigger powers and, um uh, countries like Ukraine uh, need to kind of put up because they must. Um, and the Ukrainian people will simply not tolerate that. Even if Zelensky um, were to sign an agreement with everything that Putin wanted, I mean, first of all, you know, just given the 2014, 2015 agreements, why do we even think he would, <laughs> he would honor those agreements? But secondly, the Ukrainian people, they believe in self-determination and they want to be free. And, um, you know, we started this program about um, poetry and Taras Shevchenko, the the most famous, the most beloved Ukrainian poet, said, fight on and you will prevail. And that is what the Ukrainian people are doing. And when I look at our own country, whether it's, you know, foreign service officers, civil servants, military people, all of whom, everybody who was asked to testify, even in the face of their um, agency and the White House telling them not to testify, um, decided that their, that their greater loyalty was to the Constitution, not to um, an individual. And, um, and I think that should give the American people hope. And I think, you know, about the pandemic and how, you know, so many people kept, kept the country going, uh, you know, whether it was medical workers, whether it was emergency workers, whether it was food deliverers, teachers, others, doing the right thing because, um, because we needed them. And so that's the sort of thing that gives me hope. I do believe that we have grave challenges in the United States. 
Um, and um, we need to meet them head on and everybody needs to do their part. But when I look around at me and when I, you know, some of you know that I, I work with um, students as well and, you know, talk to students who are, you know, ready to get in there and, uh, you know, are idealistic and, you know, we're going to fix the mess that my generation has made. Um, you know, that gives me a lot of hope about the future. Zachary, what do you think? You know, I think there's a lot of hope out there too. I, I, I think that we've all been inspired by the, the, the force of will and the determination of, of the Ukrainian people. Um, and I think, uh, as the ambassador said, we need to, we need to not look away. We need to keep looking and we need to, we need to keep paying attention because whether we like it or not, this fight is, is going to continue for a long time. And, uh, we have a responsibility to make sure that we, we don't forget, uh, the heroism that we've seen, but also that, that we're able to, to challenge, to channel, uh, some of those that same idealism and that same spirit, right? As in as in the past, we can often remember who we are by looking at our activities and our relationships with societies abroad and find inspiration. Indeed, as your as your poem referred to as as well. Um, I think it's also always crucial that we bring a longer historical perspective. And and Ambassador Ambassador Jovanovich, I think uh, your memoir and your discussion today share with us not only your personal experience but uh, 35, 40 years of history uh, in this region, uh, history that's crucial to understanding how we've come to this moment we are today, but also to see the possibilities. Uh, the, the power, of, as you said at the very beginning of our show, Ambassador, the, the power of individuals and the, the ways in which individuals can indeed um, change the world around them and inspire others uh, around them as well. And that's part of the story of, of Eastern Europe after the after the end of the Soviet Union, just as also the tragedies we're witnessing are part of that history as well. Uh, Ambassador, thank you so much for joining us uh, this week. Thank you. And Zachary, thank you for your poem, as always. And most of all, thank you to our loyal listeners for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.